0: As I said earlier, we'll have an opportunity here in just a moment to, uh, for you to come forward. We have these microphones in the aisle, an opportunity for you to give thanks to God for what He is doing, has done uh, in your life, and an opportunity to uh, declare it publicly in the congregation so that we might all equally praise God with you. So I encourage you to continue to think and pray on that. As we consider Thinking about thankfulness and gratitude this morning, I want to ask you a question. If you were to receive a grade for what your gratitude looks like in your life, what grade do you think you'd receive? In other words, if God were the teacher and He were assigning us a grade A through F based upon how we offer gratitude and give thanks, what grade do you think He'd give you? My guess is that few of us would believe that we'd be assigned an A+, plus. that we uh, know that we all fall short of the gratitude that we should give, and we recognize that there's still work to be done in our hearts in terms of needing to grow in gratitude. I find it interesting that the command to give thanks is repeated throughout Scripture. You know, some commands you can really only find in one or two places. The command to give thanks is repeated all over the place. And it it kind of prompts us to ask the question, why? Why does God need to repeat this kind of command? Why, Why do we need this reminder over and over again to give thanks? Why is it that through thousands of years represented by the biblical narrative, this is one of the commands that needs to be given over and over again? I think we know deep down that the answer is because we are fundamentally, on our own, ungrateful, that we are people, naturally, that do not want to give thanks. We believe that we are somewhat self-made, that we've achieved where, we've, where we are based upon our own efforts. And sure, if there's blessings, we're thankful for it, but there's not a gratitude, a deep gratitude to God. And so as a whole, mankind is an ungrateful people. Why is it that we're ungrateful? It's because of our pride. We think of ourselves so highly, think that we've attained, we've achieved where we are. There's also a sense of entitlement. We believe that whatever we have, the good things, we deserve them because of what we've done, because of who we are, or simply because we want them. We deserve the best, and if we don't get it, we're grumpy and ungrateful. All of this, though, stems from our idolatry. Mankind ultimately doesn't worship and serve God, the true creator, and therefore we are ungrateful to Him. Ingratitude is not just a courtesy or an etiquette problem, it's a worship problem. The Apostle Paul understood this, and in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, he writes this of unbelieving humanity. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, a failure to thank God or praise God stems from worshiping something other than God. A failure to thank God stems from worshiping something other than God. But God wants all of our hearts. He wants to see a grateful people. He produces a grateful people. Those who are truly his have hearts that sing of his praise and are grateful to him, but sometimes we need help getting there. We need us to be broken of our love and our attraction to the things of this world that can steal our joy, steal our worship, and can cause us to be pompous and proud. And so God employs two tests to help direct the hearts of his people towards himself. Those tests are the tests of adversity and the test of prosperity. The test of adversity and the test of prosperity. And for a moment, I want you to turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, where we see Moses' explanation of how God used those two tests in the life of the people of Israel. The book of Deuteronomy was written by Moses. After the 40 years in the wilderness, they're trying to make it to the Promised Land, the land of Canaan. And here they are on the plains of Moab um, on the other side of the Jordan River, the east side. They're waiting to cross over to go and conquer the land. Moses sits down to give his final word to the people. These people that he has led for decades now, he is handing the the baton of leadership over to Joshua, who will then lead them into the land to conquer. But because of Moses' own sin, he's not able to lead them in, and he will die on the eastern side of the Jordan. But this book of Deuteronomy is so rich as a pastoral farewell to the people of Israel. In chapter 8 here. Moses is preparing the people to enter that land, and he talks about these two tests, the test of adversity and the test of prosperity. And so we're going to look at these two tests briefly in this chapter so that we can examine our own lives to see how we are faring depending on the test that God may have us in at the moment. So first, let's read uh, Moses' review of God's purpose in Israel's adversity in verses 1 through 5. Let's read verses 1 through 5. Follow along as I read. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. I want you to notice the terms that are used by God, by Moses here, of what God was doing and the reason why God was doing it in the people of Israel. Notice in verses two and three, the word humble is mentioned. He says, I led you, you know, led these 40 years that he might humble you. In verse three, and he humbled you and let you hunger. God was bringing about a humbling to the people of Israel through this test of going through the wilderness. We also see verse 2, testing, right? That he might humble you, testing you, verse 2, to know what was in your heart. And finally, you notice verse 5, it says, uses the word discipline. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. He's not doing something pleasant through these wilderness experiences. These 40 years, he hasn't been uh, giving you all these posh blessings and, and things overflowing with abundance, He's been giving you difficulty. There's been adversity. He's been disciplining you. But what was the goal? What was God doing through that test of adversity? It was to bring about humility in the people. It was to bring about undivided devotion, total allegiance. He says to test to know what was in your heart that they might depend upon the word of God alone. And what would be the sign of this devotion of being totally Uh, devoted to the Lord, it'd be through obedience, obedience from the heart. And so I think here we see a model even for our own lives, friends, that that God does not just send adversity and difficulty and suffering into our lives willy-nilly. He doesn't send it into our lives in a purposeless way, but God always has a plan and always has a purpose for the difficulty, the adversity that he sends our way. He sends it for Our good he gave all of this difficulty to the people of Israel for their good he tested them with hunger with with difficult circumstances to the wilderness that they might depend on him alone as God as a man disciplines his son so God disciplines his people we see that repeated in Hebrews chapter 12 in the New Testament and so get this you can write this down adversity is not sent from God's wrath to punish believers but it's sent from his love to purify them. Adversity is not sent out of God's wrath to punish believers. It's sent out of his love in order to purify them. Friends, God loves us enough that he's not gonna leave us in our sin, leave us in our self-sufficiency, but he wants us to break us of that self-sufficiency. He wants us to lean on him alone, and so he sends us difficulty and suffering and trials that it might break us of all those crutches that we lean upon. And that's why James can say in James chapter 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We are to count it all joy, no matter what comes our way. And so I ask you this morning, are you walking through a time of adversity? Are you walking through a time of difficulty right now? Is God asking you to thank him and to praise his name even in the midst of those hard and difficult circumstances? Are you finding all those things that you depended upon falling away and where you're left with him alone? Don't. Spurn the discipline of the Lord. Use this as an opportunity to turn your hearts to him and let your gratitude swell up for his goodness and his love towards you even in the midst of these difficult times and then you can see when you pull back and you see what he's doing in the midst of his providence and his goodness and his love towards you, you can count it all joy because he's producing something in you that you could never produce on your own. We are challenged to give thanks when we're experiencing loss, experiencing difficulty. And it's in that very moment that we can say that the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever. And it requires a perspective change. Rather than grumbling and thinking about all the difficult and bad things, we need to think about what God is doing and the reasons we can be grateful. I'm reminded of the story of Matthew Henry. You'll maybe know of him as the Puritan commentator that wrote a whole commentary on the Bible, Matthew Henry's commentary. But one night he was robbed And the next day, he wrote in his journal this. He said, let me be thankful. For how many of us would that be our first words when we find out we've been robbed? Let me be thankful, first, because I was never robbed before. Second, because although they took my all, it was not much. And third, I guess if I'm counting here, uh, (laughs) because it was I who robbed, It was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. A means of thinking about the loss is the right circumstance, the right perspective. And so we need to think about our adversity with a Godward angle. What is God doing here? What does he want to do in my heart and my life? And we need to bring our difficulty, our suffering, our anguish to the Lord in crying out to him as he was pressing the people of Israel to do the same. So we see first in this text that it reminds us of the test of adversity and what God is doing through that. And we can be thankful to the Lord in the midst of that test. But there's a second test that Moses uh, tells of the, to the people of Israel, and that's a test of prosperity. The test of prosperity. And that goes from verse 6 to the end of the chapter. And really, it's here in this second test, the test of prosperity, where Moses sees the greater threat to their spiritual well-being. We can tend to think that difficulty and suffering is what is going to bring the greatest blow to our faith, but Moses here seems to believe that it's the prosperity, the overabundance that is going to be the greatest threat to the people of Israel, and there's something we can learn from that. And so let's look first in verses 6 through 10, just this description of the prosperity. What kind of prosperity is God going to provide Israel? Look in verses 6 through 10. It says, so you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity and which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. This land is going to be a land of, of paradise, of prosperity. Everything they didn't have in the desert, in the wilderness, they're going to now get in this promised land. And yet, what, is that, what are they to do when they experience all of that? What does verse 10 say? You shall eat and be full And you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he's given to you. The fullness in your stomach, the fullness that you experience physically with all of this prosperity and blessings should rise up in blessing and honor and praise to the one who gave it to you. That makes sense, right? And yet, as broken, sinful human beings, we will be tempted when we receive the gifts to forget the giver. We love the gifts, we receive the gifts, and we focus then all on the gifts and forget the giver. You can see this often at uh, birthday parties or Christmas time with children that uh, receive a gift and they're all of a sudden all engrossed in the gift and it's all of, all their joy and all their focus is focused on this. And as parents, we gently remind them, please go thank grandma and grandpa for that gift. Oh yeah, 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 okay, we'll go over thank them. And, uh, but it's easy for us to focus on the gift and to forget the giver. And that's exactly where Moses warns them next. Look in verse 11. Verse 11 through 20 is this warning now in the midst of the prosperity. He just described the prosperity, told them what they're to do, but now he gives them the warning in the midst of that. And the first part of that warning, we see in this warning in two parts. The first part is don't forget the Lord in your prosperity. Don't forget the Lord in your prosperity. Look in verses 11 through 16. Moses says, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God, by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest, when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there is no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you and do good to you in the end. Friends, Moses says, listen, the God who redeemed you, the God who brought you out of Egypt, the God who gave you salvation, is that God has given you all these good things, and yet it's in the midst of receiving the blessings of God that you can forget him. And the application for us, friends, is that God blesses us. God gives us many things in this life, but we cannot forget the God who redeemed us. We cannot forget when the one who's given us the greatest gift and be continually ever grateful for that. Moses is reminding him of all that God has done for them so that they would continually be grateful to him in the midst of all of these blessings. And so, too, we must be on the lookout. The gifts can distract from the giver. And here is the greatest danger of prosperity, friends it's spiritual defection. The danger of prosperity, as Moses warns us, is spiritual defection. The abundance of stuff does something upon our hearts, it doesn't just make us unsatisfied with our stuff. It turns the affections of our hearts away from the one who's deserving of all of our worship. And so we need to keep a lookout on our hearts that we are not so satisfied, so full with all that we have in this life that we are forgetting the Lord. Oh sure, we can still be about religious expression. We can go to church. We can maybe say our prayers. We can maybe read our Bibles. But we've got to look at where our hearts are at. Moses says that our hearts will be lifted up when we forget him. Oh, sure, they continued sacrificing to the Lord. They continued to be about the religious expressions of their day. But in their hearts, their hearts had departed, or he warned that their hearts will depart. And so we need to look and say, have we forgotten the Lord in the midst of all of our prosperity? In the midst of all that we have, all the things that that fill our houses and 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 our hearts, has there been a forgetfulness of the Lord, and therefore our gratitude is not what it should be? But the second part of the warning that Moses gives here is to don't take credit for your prosperity. Don't take credit for your prosperity. Look at verse 17. He says, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Friends, Moses says beware, watch out, be on the lookout. We may not even slow down to realize this, but that we begin to take credit for why we have what we have. Israel was tempted to do the same thing that they had somehow done something noble, that they had accomplished all of this victory, but it's not, it wasn't true. The Lord had given it to them. And so, friends, it reminds us to look at our own ingratitude. Are we taking credit for what God has done? Are we believing that we deserve what we have, that God owes it to us because of what we've accomplished or what we've done, how we've served him? Friends, this is, we're to be grateful in all things. And whether you're walking through the test of adversity or the test of prosperity, the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 are always true. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And we can see that that command to give thanks in all circumstances challenges us no matter what circumstance we're in, whether we're in prosperous or adverse circumstances. Either way, we need to be directing our heart to the Lord. May God give us the grace to do that no matter where we find ourselves this morning. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we pray now, confessing our sin to you. As we gather and approach you in prayer, we're conscious, Lord, that we do not have the righteousness on our own to approach you, the holy God. There's no goodness that we have to commend ourselves to you, and we can't clean ourselves, for we are stained with our own sin. We confess that we have listened to our flesh and sought to gratify its desires. We have not walked in the Spirit and have turned towards sin like our unbelieving neighbors around us. We confess that our hearts have often been ungrateful. We fail to thank you when things go well, when life is pain-free, and we fail to thank you when things go poorly and our life is filled with pain. We fail to thank you for your kind providence as you direct each one of our lives according to your sovereign will. You have purposed, as we were reminded this morning, to love us, to do us good, and we fail to acknowledge that goodness at work. We fail to thank you for our physical blessings, the clothes on our backs, the roofs on our, over our heads, the food on our tables. We confess to you also this morning, Lord, that we have often complained about the circumstances you have sent our way. We complain about our jobs, or a lack of one. We complain about our families, or our children, or our lack of children. We complain about our spouse, or a lack of spouse. We complain about the weather, whether it be hot or cold. We complain about our nation, our state. We complain about even the times we live in. We complain about the things we have and possess, and then we are discontented and envious of what others have. Father, we gripe and complain and are ungrateful about so many things. Father, we do not seek to excuse our ingratitude and our pride, but rather simply confess that we have sinned. And yet we do not stay in our sin. We fly repenting to your outstretched arms. You will not cast us off, for Jesus has brought us near. You will not condemn us, for he has died in our place. You will not mark our sins, for he has covered them all. Oh, Father, we cling to his cross, and we thank you for the forgiveness that you offer through him. It's in his name that we pray, amen.